how do we respond to this world of escalating violence and a world of economic exploitation? Um, we could we could do this. We could uh, just distract ourselves. Um, and from the global north, we're pretty good at this, at just distracting ourselves from the reality of global situations. You know, when we talk about violence for those in the global north, those in the UK, this isn't necessarily knocking, uh, knocking on our uh, knocking on our doors. Uh, we could uh, just enter into denialism. And there's something in, in uh, Catherine Hayhoe's book on the climate says something like 5% of people uh, regarding climate stuff, they're just in denial mode. And actually, there's no point ha having lengthy debates and discussions trying to persuade them because there's some human beings who can't face reality or can't face the pain and they would rather enter into sort of the door and the pain of cognitive dissonance and slight change of my mind. So just deny it outright. Uh, so we could do that. We could just deny what's happening in the world. We could despair. Oh, how easy it is to uh, despair. But what we're advocating in this course is what we're calling Christocentric missiology is we're on a mission. We have a task to do, a job to do, and that's to look and love like Jesus. We're to adapt, enter into adaptation as we move into a world which is more violent. We adapt to it, not in a way where we, you know, we move into fear or we, um, you know, we just try and uh, stock up on resources in home and not care about anyone else. No, we enter into cruciform adaptation. We seek to be fearful followers of Jesus as we go into a world of economic exploitation and escalating violence. So if we're going to look to Jesus, well, how do we look to Jesus? Um, well, we can read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke and John. And you were set the homework challenge to read Luke's Gospel and identify five passages which... Uh, pick up the theme of justice, peace and reconciliation. So what we're going to do, we're going to put you into groups. You're going to discuss. You might not be able to share your five. So maybe just have, a, you know, your two favourite ones up your sleeve. And you're going to have, let's, what, 15 minutes, Katie? 15 minutes to discuss what you think the Gospels tell us about Jesus and justice, peace and reconciliation. Hopefully then, um, that means it doesn't matter what I go and teach for the rest of this session. You'll have already identified everything from the Gospels to do with justice, peace and reconciliation. So, Katie, can you put us into some yeah. groups? Yeah, so you're in groups of um, four to five. So you've got about three minutes each um, just to share. Maybe even if it's just one verse or one passage that really um, jumped out to you that kind of speaks into this as we unpack this material. Um, so, yeah, we'll regather at 10 past. Um, so you've got 15 minutes. Enjoy. Okay, so what we've done is sort of sketch out a bit of our contemporary context, a world of escalating uh, violence, a world of economic exploitation. We've already suggested and you've done a good job of, you know, let's see what Jesus has to say about these things. But as we approach the, the Gospels, perhaps in a more academic way, or at least um, it's, it's important that we read the Gospels in their 
in their cultural context. So if we're going to the uh, to the Gospels to see if they directly address nuclear weapons, the arms trade or unrestrained capitalism, it's a little bit anachronistic. We're almost like misusing the text, which we could be misusing it for good ethical reasons, but also it leads it open to misusing the text to support views which, which are not in there. Um, William Herzog in his book, Jesus, Justice and the Reign of God, says this, when interpreters, people like me and you, inter isolate biblical texts from their social and cultural worlds thereof, they force the ancient text to speak a contemporary word through an act of theological ventriloquism, if you get what I, if you get what I mean. The Gospels are not God's word to us. They are for us. You know, if they were written to us, um, they'd presumably be written in, um, well, for those who English is the first language, they'd be, they'd be written in English, but they're not, they're, uh, you know, uh, initially written in Greek, which means we rely on translators knowing the context to be able to bring that message for us. Um, the public ministry of the historical Jesus occurred during the early 30s of the first century in Palestine. And it's important that to, we have some idea of the social, economic and political life of the period. Again, I'll be painting this in broad strokes. But here's a, an opening quote um, from Alan Borsak. Jesus was born into a colonised people ruled by strangers Conquered, afraid, bowed down, oppressed, overrun, overtaxed, overburdened, stripped of honour, dignity and hope. They lived their lives between submission and rebellion, their resentment of their oppressors boiling over every now and then into revolt, only to be ruthlessly crushed by the Romans. Already we see here that Jesus's context is very different than my own. Um, Last last time we met, we had that indigenous translation, didn't we, of the Beatitudes, which shows that those who are from a First Nation perspective perhaps more readily lean into the uh, the context of Jesus than uh, myself, who is in a position of, um, you know, I'm not ruled by strangers. I mean. Don't get me wrong, at times I find Boris Johnson strange, but not ruled by strangers as such. Um, I don't necessarily live a life which is stripped of honour and dignity, but that was the case for uh, Jesus and his contemporaries. So in order to understand the context of Jesus, we're going to look at uh, three different aspects. We're going to look at the Jewish context of Jesus' ministry. We're going to look at um, Roman rule, and we're going to look at the economy of oppression. I'll do it quite quick, but we can always go back and unpack it later, hopefully when we get time for questions. So the Jewish context of Jesus' ministry. Jesus was living and his contemporaries were living in a story. And this is a very different story than that which was there in the Greco-Roman world. This is a story of monotheism. There is one creator God who is worthy of all worship, which is why often, sometimes Jews were called atheists and the early church were called atheists because they didn't believe in the whole, you know, um, all the gods of the Roman Empire. It's a story of monotheism, of covenant 
and of eschatology. By eschatology, I mean that there was a view that history is heading somewhere. On the left-hand side there, you can see I've got a number of Cs which outline the Jewish story. Um, unfortunately, I got, this, I got this published, this list, and I had kingship, which was a bit of an outlier because it begins with a K. And as soon as I got it published, one of my friends turned around at me and said, why didn't you just use the word crown instead? So I missed that, that one of having a, a preacher's delight of having everyone beginning with AC. So the story of, we might say the story of Israel, the story of Old, Old Testament is a good God who has created a good world. How different this is to other stories out there, such as from the Babylonian world, where this world is created by the conflict of the gods. So the world in a sense, isn't intrinsically good. In the Jewish story, this world is good, made by a good God, but the world slips into chaos and rebellion. Uh, Eden uh, is no more. People are exiled from Eden, but God embarks on a rescue plan, a rescue mission. And as Christians, we want to jump straight and say, yes, we know it's Jesus. But actually, when we look at the Old Testament, that rescue story, that rescue plan begins in Genesis chapter 12 onwards. It's the story where God chooses and elects Abraham and his descendants for a mission to be a blessing to the world. God blesses them to be a blessing. This is where the story of the Old Testament gains traction. Anytime after Genesis 12, if you're reading the Old Testament, you're asking, well, what's happened to this blessing to the nations? It's the hinge on which the Old Testament story hinges. And for those who know the New Testament, they know that Abraham keeps on cropping up because that's the early church. You're thinking, how does this, uh, the Jesus story fit in with the Abraham story? So God enters into covenant with his people. They enter into the land. Um, the land is equally and evenly distributed amongst the tribes and their families but Israel seeks to have a king they want to be like the other nations and then obviously this is a whistle stop to it of the Old Testament here um, uh, uh, they have a king they're in the land there's a temple but then they begin to commit a number of sins such as idolatry such as being ritualistic in their worship without having their heart towards Yahweh, the covenant God. And also they began to oppress the poor and the vulnerable. See, God's people are always intended to be a light to the nations, a blessing to the nations. But actually, it seems like they, they have become sick. If Israel were called to be a doctor to the world, what happens when the doctor becomes sick? Well, catastrophe befalls the nation and they end up in exile. They end up in exile. Uh, the simplified version uh, would just focus on the Babylonian exile. That's where Borne M sang, sang that song in the Old Testament, by the rivers of Babylon, there we wept, for we remembered Zion. By the time we get to Jesus, although the people are back in the land, there's still a sense that the story is awaiting an ending, that there's still a spiritual exile taking place. And God's people had this belief that this eschatology, the, the, where the story is heading, would one day happen, not so much through 
gradual events over time. What would happen when the day of the Lord would, would arrive? And this age, which is broken, it's full of sin, it's full of violence, would turn into the age to come. We might say that they had a view of the kingdom, that one day the kingdom would arrive and it would arrive through um, uh, it would arrive through a Messiah figures, figure or figures. Um, so Jews at the time of Jesus were improvising on the basis of the story which has gone before them. You would have the Pharisees. Part of their improvising was doubling down on the law. If we enter into exile because of sin, then if we get the law right, if we become righteous, then God may act and bring in the age to come. You had the Essenes, and they would see themselves as, in a sense, retreating from the world and going living in the desert. You get the Herodians. Actually, they were compromised and they colluded with the, uh, with the Romans and those in establishment, seeking to make the most of it while we live in the present age. And then you had the zealots. And it's a little bit anachronistic to say that we're zealots at the time of Jesus. So forgive me for that. But there was violent movements who sought to bring an end to Roman occupation by violence and the sword. And all of them, all of these groups are trying to improvise on the basis of the story so far. So when Jesus turns up and he's, you know, is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ? Some people are expecting to see a violent type of Messiah or perhaps someone who would be like a Pharisee or someone who would retreat into the desert. But Jesus seems to be doing something a little bit different. Moving on to the context, we have what we might call the, which we'll call the Maccabean revolt and the hope for a violent <laughs> Messiah. 160 years before the birth of Jesus, um, the Seleucids, or we might say the Greeks, were in charge. And they were ruled by Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the king of Syria. And he invaded Jerusalem and placed a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. In response to this, a violent revolt took place, which was headed up by Mephaeus and his sons, one who was called Judas, but he was nicknamed the Hammer. Using guerrilla warfare, their revolt seemed suicidal and doomed to failure. However, in 164 BC, they were victorious. The temple was rededicated and the Feast of Hanukkah was first celebrated. It's this festival which is mentioned in John 10, 22. And for a short time, Israel would be independent. And this event was reinforced through the stories, songs and rituals at the time of Jesus. And it meant that the victory of, over the foreign powers would provide fuel for the fires of first century messianic hope. People were looking for a hammer with which they could free themselves from the tyranny of Rome and the oppressors. An example of this would be seen in a psalm, a Psalms of Solomon. You might say, I haven't read that in my Bible. Well, it's because Jews and people of faith were still writing 
psalms and prayers and stories even you know in and around the time of jesus it's called second temple jewish literature and one of these psalms reads as follows see lord and raise up for for them their king the son of david to rule over your servant israel in the time known to you O god undergird him with strength so you know lord bring a son of david bring a messiah strengthen him to destroy unrighteous rulers to purge jerusalem from gentiles who trample her to destruction in wisdom and in righteousness to drive out the sinners from the inheritance to smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar to shatter all their substance with an iron rod to destroy the unlawful nations with the word of his mouth you see there were many were looking for a violent messiah um, James Dunn, the biblical scholar who uh, was, at, was at Durham, um, he said this, uh, to be noted, here is the common assumption that the royal messiah would be a powerful ruler executing justice for all. They were looking for a messiah full of just, justice, but he would have a warlike character in rooting out evil and destroying Israel's enemies. A lively hope at the time of Jesus was the third Davidic messiah who would be a warrior king who would destroy the enemies of Israel. So many who followed Jesus, and if they saw him as a Messiah, would have expected him to be like the hammer, the warrior, and that liberation would come through violence, that the kingdom, the age to come, would arrive through the edge of the sword. And instead, what do they see? They see one whose arms are outstretched, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he dies the death of a rebel on a cross. And no wonder many people then thought, well, that's the end of the story. So um, Jewish context, Maccabean revolt is in uh, recent uh, memory. And um, I've already mentioned this. Let me explain it a little bit more. Roman rule through client kings. In Israel remained independent until 63 BC when Israel was occupied by Rome. And occupation meant domination, economic exploitation, and the constant threat of violence. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was achieved by the edge of a sword. This political fact was a daily, daily reality for Jesus. And in the opening pages of the Gospel of Luke, we see that at the birth of Jesus, Caesar Augustus ruled the world and that he, in his adult life, Tiberius Caesar was in charge. A few quotations there, which I'm not going to read to you, but notice Luke verse 3, three verse 1 talks about Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea. There was direct rule in uh, Judea and Jerusalem, but more like client kings like Herod, and uh, Philip, who are in charge of other regions. Just after Jesus' birth, so this is also the larger context where Jesus is at, but just after Jesus' birth and after the Herod the Great died, a man called Judas the Galilean led an armed uprising in the capital of Galilee called Sepphoris. Sepphoris was only four miles away from Nazareth, the town of Jesus' birth. 
So around the time, you know, just after Jesus is born, there's an uprising which takes place four miles away in Sepphoris. And um, no doubt Jesus would have been brought up meeting eyewitnesses of this rebellion. He would have been told that Varus, the Roman general, responded to this insurrection by bringing in a detachment of soldiers who not only captured the rebels, he burned the city and very likely crucified hundreds of people. In a similar revolt, which happened in 66 AD, 2,000 rebels were crucified in one day. As a child, would Mary have spoken to Jesus and said, Jesus, let me tell you about the time when the Romans came. Incidentally, Judas the Galilean, who, who led that revolt, he's actually mentioned in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, verse 37. So Jesus is living in a world of escalating violence. And as the 30s turn into the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, it heads towards AD 70, where Jerusalem is destroyed because of a rebellion against Rome. This is the context in which Jesus is doing ministry. It's a world of escalating violence. So when we hear Jesus talking about peacemaking, this isn't an academic in a university, in a, in a country which hasn't known conflict for decades. This is someone who in, in his lifetime has seen the crucifixion of rebels, who's living um, who's being colonized by Rome. But Jesus also lives in an economy of oppression. Um, the, the Palestine of Jesus' day, and here I'm, I'm leaning on William Herzog's book, Jesus, Justice in the Reign of God. Um, and if, in the module handbook, I've got links to these books if you want to look at them. But he says this, the Palestine of Jesus' day could be described as an advanced agrarian society dominated by a rational aristocratic empire, Rome. It's an agricultural society, which is dominated by the Roman Empire. One to two percent of the ruling class owned the land. Uh, agrarian or agricultural aristocratic empires have two essential tasks, military control and economic exploitation. That may resonate as we've looked at colonization of the global south, you know, military control and economic exploitation. 70 to 80% of the population were peasants. If you look on the, on the screen there, on the left-hand side, and within scholarship, there's obviously debate about exact figures. So I'm just sketching out some general views here. On the left-hand side, we've got a helpful diagram, which is called the onion. Um, and if you look here, at the top of it, it's wealth and status with a small number of the Roman elite and their client kings who would have the power and the money. But most people living below the poverty line, most people living below the poverty line. In the, in the dictionary article on the right hand side, uh, the dictionary of Jesus and the uh, and the Gospels, 
Uh, if you look up the economy of the time, it says this, the vast majority of inhabitants of the Greco-Roman world who lived at or near subsistence level, whose primary concern it was to obtain the minimum food, shelter and clothing necessary to sustain life, whose lives were dominated by the struggle for physical survival. So Jesus' context for doing ministry is where there's an economy of oppression. In Jesus' day, many were hungry. Half the harvest may have been taken as taxed. Many were in debt in an economy which favoured the rich and those in collusion with the empire, the emperor or his client kings. As I've read about this ancient context, I'm just reminded of contemporary context. According to a 2018 UN report, the 26 richest people in the world, 26 richest people in the world hold as much wealth as half of the global population. The 26 richest people in the world own, hold as much wealth as the 3.8 billion poorest people. It's like the onion on, on steroids, if you sort of forgive my language there. Into this context, Jesus comes speaking and enacting the kingdom of God. <laughs>